All right, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, tonight, we're looking at the last of the major prophets. We've worked our way through. Uh, next week, we'll look at Hosea, the first of the minor prophets. Major and minor it has n zero implication of their importance in, in God's redemptive plan, but everything to do with just the size of the books. Um, so tonight we're looking at Daniel. Daniel is uh, a very simple book to outline. It has two points. Uh, point number one is the life of Daniel and his biography and his three friends, Shad, Mac, Meshach, and, and Abednego. Abednego. Uh, not a billy goat, not, uh, but, uh, and then at, starting at chapter 7, Moving forward, it's his apocalyptic visions. Now, we talked about this when we studied the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic doesn't mean it's destruction. Apocalypse is the Greek word for just an unveiling. So there are things that are brought out in, in the last chapters that nobody had seen before. So Daniel starts out uh, with the background information that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Uh, Daniel was taken with uh, three of his friends and a, a group of people that were taken into captivity. So the, the four people who will, be, will watch through the book of Daniel are Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, I was asked just before we started... Uh, why we know Daniel by his Hebrew name, and we know um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah by their, their pagan names. And the answer to that is simply, as Daniel tells the story, he tells us their names, and then he refers to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, but it's interesting because Daniel's name, the word Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is, which I really like that. And Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. Belteshazzar, which is what Daniel's name was changed to, means uh, O Lady, the wife of the god Baal, protect the king. Shadrach means I am very fearful uh, of the command of Aku, the god Aku. Uh, and Meshach means I'm of little account. I don't mean anything. What a, what a terrible name to get. So I'm meaningless. And Abednego means servant of the shining one, Nebo. And so they, their names were changed from names that brought significance to God, Yahweh, changed to false gods. Uh, interestingly enough, I did some mission work in uh, Nepal, and everyone in Nepal's name uh, has a significance to a Hindu or Buddhist God. Uh, and so it's very normal and traditional that when a person becomes a believer, they change their name. And so my translator's name was Barnabas. Um, the pastor of the church that I was, was, was at, his name was Jeremiah. And everybody had changed their name to a biblical name. Uh, and uh, so me and Patrick, who was the pastor that I went and did this pastoral counseling with, they said, well, so what's your Christian name? And, I, and meaning, what did you change your name to after I became believers? And I said, my name is Thomas. It's already a biblical name. And Patrick was the, the first uh, non-biblical missionary. So we already have Christian names. Uh, and uh, they didn't like that. And so they said they were going to decide what our new names were. And so we became... Um, 
Uh, I became James uh, because of my preaching style. They said I was the, one of the sons of thunder, and so uh, and he became John, which was just weird. But that they felt the need to do that, and so the, in Daniel, the opposite is done. The theme. The thing that is seen over and over and over and over throughout the book of Daniel, both in their biographies and in the apocalyptic writing, is the sovereignty of God. If Daniel believed anything, he believed that God was completely and totally in control. That he was on the throne, he's the one that's making the decisions. Now isn't it interesting, now think about this, Daniel was a young man living in Israel, a foreign nation came, took him captive, drug him off thousands of miles away from his home, and yet he, what he came to be the, the theme of his life was that God is sovereign. And yet it seems to me that we have a real struggle and a hard time believing that God is sovereign. And we live in cushy little lives that, I mean, it would be unthinkable that somebody might take our children off to a foreign country. And yet we struggle with, how, how did God let this happen? Or why did God let that happen? And yet Daniel, in the face of unthinkable wickedness occurring to him, had no doubt that God is in control. In Daniel Chapter 2, he's talking, and this is what he said. Daniel answered the king and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel believed that God was completely and totally in control and that nothing could get to him that God didn't allow to happen. The theme is completely that God is sovereign over history. He's sovereign over empires. He's sovereign over kings. All the kingdoms of this world will come to an end and be replaced by the Lord's kingdom, which will never pass away. Though trials and difficulties will continue for God's people up until the end, those who are faithful will be raised to glory, honor, and everlasting life in this final kingdom. We need to hear the message of Daniel. As I today have gone through the day and everywhere I go uh, on the TV, you know, there's, there's pundits that are talking about who's going to be the president and this is why this person's going to win and why that person's going to win. We who are in Christ have no doubt, should have no misapprehension or misunderstanding that God's in control, that He's on the throne. He is not walking around in the portals of heaven, wringing His hands, saying, what do we do now? Daniel lived in the face of unbelievably difficult pagan influences, and persecution. And Daniel chose in his life to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm going to be different. No matter where I go, I'm going to follow God's word. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember because we have a hard time remembering sometimes that the principle behind 
real Christian ethic is, it doesn't matter what the rest of the world does. It doesn't matter what the rest of people who call themselves Christian do. I'm going to do what I believe God's Word says, and I'm going to stay true to my conscience regardless of the consequences. In The Hiding Place, uh, Corey Tim Boom tells the story of her and her sister uh, struggling with the fact that their father was disobeying the law and was hiding Jews in their kitchen, and she could not lie. And she and her father talked about it often. And sure enough, the day that she feared occurred, and German soldiers came into their home, pointed a weapon at her, and said, Are there any Jews in this house? And she looked at the Jewish officer and said, Yes, sir, they're under the kitchen table. And he slapped her and said, don't lie to me, child. So God took care of the consequences. She followed her conscience. She told the truth. We don't pragmatically, as believers, calculate what's going to be the end result. The end result is in God's hands. We follow what God told us to do. We leave the consequences in the hand of God. We see this working out perfectly in Daniel's life and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's life. Daniel resolved in chapter 1, verse 8, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. So here, all these other boys who had been chosen because they were good-looking, they were healthy-looking, that they, they had been chosen to serve the king, they were given the best food from the king's table, Daniel said, I'm not going to defile myself and eat from the king's table. He appealed to the chief that was over him. He appealed to his authority. Can I do something different? He and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, went on a salad diet. And at the end of the trial period that Daniel proposed, the four of them were healthier than everybody else. And so everybody else was taken off the king's food and put on a salad diet. So you know Daniel was popular. And we, we laugh at that, but think about how difficult it must have been for this young man to say, only the four of us, in all of these Jewish captives, only the four of us are raising a concern. Martin Luther, famously in the Diet at Worms, when he was called to stand before a council to address the things that he had said in the 95 Thesis that he had nailed to the doors of Wittenberg on October 31st, just this last week, we all, I know, celebrated Reformation Day uh, on October 31st, and that was the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 complaints about the selling of, uh, of indulgences in the Catholic Church. He was called to a council to address that. And they said how they had, had all of his writings on a table in front of him and said, how do you plead, essentially? And we've all seen it in movies, but what the movies always cut out is what he actually said the first time he was asked. He said, can I have 24 hours? And there was some debate. The, the king who had promised him safe passage said, fine, you can have 24 hours. And so he was put more or less in a cell. And it was said that 
that entire night he paced back and forth in his room and uttered the same phrase over and over again. Am I alone wise? His struggle wasn't with what he believed, but the fact that everybody else in Christendom disagreed with him. Am I alone wise? Am I the only one who sees that the book of Romans clearly says that we're justified by faith? Am I alone wise? And he steeled himself the second time he was asked. And he said, I have found that it is neither right nor safe to go against God's word or one's conscience. Here I stand, God help me. And from that one man stand, the flow of the gospel was reopened into Europe, which allowed things to happen that brought us here today. But at that moment in time, he asked, am I alone wise? And you know that these four boys, as all the rest of the captives were choosing to drink the wine, to eat the pork, to do the things that the law forbade, you're not in Israel anymore. Your parents aren't here to watch what you do, to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. Why not just go along? Why be the person that's always got to buck the system? And you know that they had to be thinking, that, that, uh, I remember when I was pastoring the first church that I was a full-time pastor at in uh, Bunn, North Carolina, and an issue came up about baptizing a, a, a black man in this church. The, the deacons felt like that it was improper that this guy should go to a black church. And I stood on what, the principles that I believed. And the first thing that the chairman of the deacon said before we came to this meeting, I called the former pastor who had a Ph.D. in theology uh, from the same seminary that I went to, and we asked him if we were right or you were right, and he said that we were in the right. So you're telling me that you're smarter than Dr. Schmuckatelli. That's often how the world presents falseness. Or you, you think you're the only one? Now, they don't know it, but I quoted Martin Luther. I literally said, I have found that I have to follow my conscience and what I believe God's word to say, and here I stand. No matter what everybody else says, I've got to follow what I believe God's word says in my own conscience. So these guys, they followed their conscience, they followed the ethic that they had set up in the midst of a pagan culture, and God protected them. And this happens over and over and over again in the first six chapters. God would bless them, God would raise them up, and then there would, that would bring them up against persecution. We know the story. We know it well. Daniel interprets the dream. He, he is made super important. Uh, and then we read the story where Nebuchadnezzar sets up the golden image. Uh, there, there's in the Hebrew, there's a little bit of some wordplay uh, that's kind of funny where uh, there's poking fun to, of Nebuchadnezzar because it says in chap, uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 2, then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then when the, the, the music is played, the text tells us that all the satraps, uh, magistrates, justices, and officials fell down and worshipped it. What, what the author here is trying to do is say, everybody... He on purpose repeats that list throughout the text. All, everybody who was super important went along with it. All the satraps, justices, magistrates. Uh, in fact, because it's repeated so many times in the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, they just didn't feel like writing it over and over again. So they just wrote it one time and then kind of put the dot dots. All those people. Um, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, they were asked, why will you not worship? If you don't worship, you will immediately be cast into the firing furnace. They answered him and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more hot. Now, here's what, what you got. Here are these young men that the king took out of all the captives. He fed them. He took care of them. He educated them. And then they had the gall to say, we're not going to worship your golden image. Then he tried to intimidate them. He tried to throw his power as king in their face. And their response was the most infuriating that a person of authority could get. You know what? You can kill us. We serve a God that can protect us. But even if he doesn't, even if you throw us into the fiery furnace and we burn up, you will know one thing. We didn't serve your gods. And that's absolutely certain. And it made him terribly mad to the point that he made illogical decisions. He heated the furnace up seven times so that the, the and it, the text says that he sent to his army to, to, to get the big boys. He wanted to get the most intimidating looking soldiers that he got. I remember when I was in the Marine Corps, I served with a guy whose name was Hecht. He was a, uh, uh, from Chicago and he was a, a Russian immigrant. He, he, his parents were, were born in Russia and he was one of the most intimidating human beings I've ever met. He was easily about seven foot tall. He had what looked like a deformed jawline. His jaw jutted out so much. He was so wide that literally to go through a standard door, he would have to turn sideways. For the, the military only makes clothes, the largest size that we could get was extra large. And on him, it looked like me trying to wear some of William's clothes, like a small I mean, it's like he couldn't put his arms down because the shirt was so tight on his arms and shoulders. And here he is wearing extra large. And I've got a picture of me standing with him, and I look like a little kid standing beside him. And, and everybody, all my kids, when they see that in the photo, they go, why is he wearing such short shorts? And I'm like, because that's the biggest they had. And so he looks like a 70s NBA basketball player with these short shorts on. Um, and he was just an intimidating-looking person. He was a, a, a giant, gentle giant, but he, he just looked 
terribly huge. Nebuchadnezzar, on purpose, sends off and finds the biggest, baddest-looking guys he could find. And because he had heated the furnace up seven times, when they carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to throw them in the fire, their, the soldiers fell dead from the heat exposure. And then Nebuchadnezzar, it says, jumps up and looks in the fire and says, didn't we put three in there? Because there's four in the fire now, and one appears to be a son of God. They didn't try to fetch him out. He said, hey, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come here. And they just walked out of the fire. The Bible says that they, their hair on their head wasn't singed. They didn't even smell like smoke. The only thing that the fire had burned off was the ropes that had bound them. And they walked out, and he immediately went from boiling anger, filled with fury, to astonishment. And so he actually uh, said... Let me find it here. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who has trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb for limb. Here he still doesn't quite get it because, I mean, his order here is a little over the top. They shall be torn limb from limb. Their houses laid in ruins, for there is no God who is able to rescue in this way. And so my experience has been is that over time, that people that are angry with you for your Christian faith will come to you and ask you to pray for something. I have had that happen over and over and over in my life. At work, when I, I worked for Drummond, you know, you get made any time that you're... I mean, part of it is not really persecution because if you, you guys who worked at Goodyear know that, that um, everybody got a weird nickname and everybody got made fun of. And so I was usually called preacher boy or church guy or, or uh, church lady. I don't know if you guys remember that Saturday Night Live skit and, and made fun of about that stuff. And that, that's, you know, you, you, you go into the, the break room and, and somebody's put something Christianese on, on it. And, and those same people that would make fun of you when something tragic happened in their family would come and say, Hey, will you, will you pray for my mom? I just found out she's got cancer. And so taking a stand for the Lord, even at the moment, if it feels embarrassing, it feels hard, you're, you're planting seed. That Here we see immediately, because God's trying to show us and teach us, we see that same scenario played out again when uh, there's a, a plan to, uh, to, by somebody who politically wants to undermine Daniel's authority. And so they, they pass a rule that nobody can pray. Daniel prays just like he always did. He didn't, he didn't do anything crazy. He just went and beside his bed and prayed. And then that night he, he got to overnight with some lions. So God shows over and over and over again that when we are faithful to him, he is faithful to us. Now, we still have Hebrew, the end of Hebrews 11 in our Bibles, which says, and there's some who don't receive the promise in this lifetime. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego noted, if God chooses not to save us, that's his choice. That's not on me. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And if God chooses to save me, he can. He certainly can. If he doesn't choose, then what will happen is we'll die in this furnace, but you'll know that we didn't serve your God. Sometimes God lets Peter go to the cross. Our responsibility is not to worry about the consequences. Our responsibility is to do what we know we're supposed to do and what God's Word teaches us to do and let God handle the consequences. Because God wouldn't be any less God if Daniel had been eaten in the lion's den. There were thousands of Christians that were eaten by lions in the Roman Colosseum. God chose not at that moment to save them on this life. We know where they are now. The book of Revelation tells us that right now, all the souls of those who were martyred are under God's throne. They have the ultimate protection. When we think under His throne, we may think that that means demeaning. If you've ever gone to somebody's house that owns a chihuahua, you've seen this happen. Okay, so there are, there are few creatures that God have created more annoying than a chihuahua. I mean, they're little shaky little little nervous, and, and they act like that they're, you know, pit bulls. And if you, if you threaten one of those chihuahuas, like you stomp at it, where's that dog going to run? It's going to go run under the owner's chair, right? Every time. Why? Because they know that that owner's going to protect them. Underneath the throne of God means that they have God's direct protection. And so those that are martyred, are under God's throne, how long until you bring vengeance for our death? All right. So we see that the, the things that happen in this world fall under the sovereignty of God. We get come now to the break where Daniel sees his apocalyptic visions. And they're cool. They are really cool. In Daniel 7, we read, And I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court set in judgment, and the books were opened. This is so similar to the vision that Isaiah sees, the vision that we saw Ezekiel see, and the vision that John sees. As everything changes in this world consistently and constantly, C.S. Lewis wrote in the 40s, Isn't it strange how it seems day to day nothing changes, but we look back 10 years ago and everything's different? The one constant that we know in our lives is that things change. I, uh, this is November, so I'm doing No Shave November. I uh, haven't done, grown, let my beard grow out since last November, and I was looking in the mirror today and said, I'm going to look like Santa Claus when this comes in. It's all white now. What happened? It's only been one year. Just wait. That's right. Said the bald man. I'm just saying. Um, in 713, I saw in the night visions, 
And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Who does that sound like? In fact, Jesus' favorite expression for himself, the most often used way that he referred to himself was from this text, the Son of Man. This weird description is given in the book of Daniel of someone who is part God and part man. He's the Son of Man. He's literally born from mankind. And yet he has authority and a kingship and dominion that is described here in a, as a way that is only divine. How can the Son of Man be King of kings and Lord of lords whose kingdom is forever and ever. Humans don't live forever and ever. And so this strange apocalyptic vision that he sees of the Son of Man, we get to see in the book of Luke fulfilled. My favorite Christmas story is the story of Anna. And that baby being brought into the temple. And this little old lady holding that baby. And saying, finally my eyes have seen the redemption of Israel. So, Daniel lays out his uh, apocalyptic prophecies. He tells us about Jesus. He tells us about things that we will see repeated. Daniel As I read it today, it's just so reminiscent and reads a lot like the book of Revelation. They go, kid, uh, hand in glove. So we see that not only is God sovereign and in control in Daniel's life, he's in control and sovereign over the future. And maybe that's something that today we need to hear more than ever. As I look at the movement of politics, not just the political games that are being played now, the movement of politics scares me. And I think, what kind of world is my, are my grandkids going to grow up in? And it would be easy for me to allow that to become worry that maybe cripples my ability to function in Christ. But Daniel sees not only that God is in control today, but that he owns the future. In fact, Daniel lived to see the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar come to an end. Daniel outlived the kingdom that took him hostage. Remember the story of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son throwing a kegger in the palace and sending for the temple implements to drink out of, and they were they're having a big party, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, one of the funny things that I, I, whenever I'm watching movies, I always think, okay, clearly whoever wrote this has never been in a bar, because people will be stumble drunk, and then all of a sudden they're sober. It's like, oh, we got to go do something, and I'm like, that's that's not how that works. Um, but here in this verse, we read the story of people who had been on a multi-day bender 
And when they see a hand floating in the sky, riding on the wall, all of a sudden, they didn't feel like partying none too much. And Daniel tells them that what's written on the wall is telling them that they've been measured and found wanting. And then the text goes on to say that that very night, all those participants in the party died. Because, and we know from history that Darius had uh, dammed up the river that came into Babylon and came in in the dry riverbed underneath the walls and take the Medes and the Persians defeated the Assyrians in one night. Daniel saw God in his providence do what he said he would do. And it was through the Medes and Persians that Cyrus ended up writing the decree so that the words of Jeremiah would be proven true that sent the Jews back to Israel. We see in this text that God humbles the proud and raises up the humble. Even the hearts of the greatest kings are under his control. Nebuchadnezzar was called himself king of kings and lord of lords. And when he his pride was raised too high, God made him think he was a cow. The dumbest of all the critters. Most animals, if they're thirsty, you can put water out for them and they will smell it and go to it. I remember very well, we, uh, we had an ice storm and um, in the ice storm, our electricity stopped uh, working uh, and we lived at the end of a co-op, so we, when the power went out, we went without power minimum two weeks because we were the last people on the line, A, and B, we, our nearest neighbor is like a mile and a half away, so if they fixed their power, they fixed one off of the big long list. So we were the last people who ever got fixed. And so I, I had about 60 cows, and uh, the, with no power, my pump wouldn't work, so we didn't have water pressure. And so I'm trying to rush around and figure out how to get water. Well, we had a, a, a dug well on the property, and so I uh, did not have a bullet bucket. I had to to, to improvise a bucket where I could literally lower a bucket down old school and scoop water up and fill this water up. So I had these cows that had gone for eight, nine hours without drinking anything, and I, I have, have carted water out there to them, and it, but it was in a different place than they were used to it being. And, and I could not, I mean, that was the proverbial, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I mean, they're, they're all hanging out in this field, going to the, the normal bucket that had the, the hose pipe run to it, um, and they were just lulling at this thing like, hey, we need some water. And I'm, I'm splashing water over here going, come here over here and drink this water. And they're just looking at me like, well, put it in this bucket. This is what we drink out of. And I literally had to go grab one of the cows. And I grabbed the bull because he had literally had a ring in his nose and pulled him over to the correct place for water and shoved his head down in the water so that he'd say, this is water, drink here. And then when he started drinking, all the other cows were like, oh, Oh, we can, okay, I see what's going on. And then they all soldered over and got something to drink. But they're just dumb. And so the ultimate humiliation that God could give Nebuchadnezzar is he went from standing on his balcony literally saying to himself, I am a great king. Look at all that I have done. To thinking that he was a cow hanging out in the field um, eating grass. And the text tells us that he ate grass until his hair 
was as long as an eagle's feather. So I, I don't know how long an eagle's feather is, but he had long hair and his fingernails looked like claws. So there's, there's you, you a pleasant vision of disgustingness with him hanging out there eating grass. He humbled the proud. And Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego, and Daniel, who were lowly slave servants, he elevated. God is sovereign over the course of history, even those who rebel against him and seek to destroy his people. Satan, when he wanted to uh, uh, take advantage of Job, had to go get God's permission. God's sovereignty is extended beyond his people. Earthly events are a reflection of a great conflict between angelic forces of good and evil. In chapter 10, or 9 and 10, we see Daniel's prayer, and then we see an angel bringing him the answer, and then we see in chapter 10... Um, A vision of a man, uh, I, I believe, and we talked about this when we did Kings and um, uh, Angels and Demons, that I think this is a Christophany. Um, and he told them that, that uh, in verse 12, then he said, Fear not, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have, I have come because of your words. Again, I'm in chapter 10 now at verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people. And so what, is, what we're seeing here is that Daniel starts praying, and he prays for 21 days, and it doesn't seem like he gets an answer. When this Christophany occurs, the the vision that he sees is a guy says, well, I came 21 days ago to tell you that God heard your prayers, but demonic forces kept me from getting to you. And so an archangel had to come help me fight against them before I could get to you. Now that is a strange vision. But what we see here is that things that are happening to us in this world, that there's a counterpart to that, in the spiritual realm. And what we see in the book of Daniel is the weapon that we have to fight against those spiritual powers is prayer. You have not because you ask not. We pray weekly. W-E-A-K-L-Y. We pray pathetically. And yet the God that created the universe has said, Ask for whatever you will. Every great revival that we have documentation of, every one of them began with people desperately praying. I, I think specifically of the great Scottish revival with uh, John Knox praying, Give me Scotland lest I die. We don't pray like that. 
And so we see here that around us there's spiritual warfare going on. It's confusing. You read this text and you're like, now what? This angel's overcome by whoever the demons is who's working with Persian. What in the world is going on? You know what? We don't need to know the details. What we need to know is, is that our weapon is not us claiming some authority that we don't have. Our weapon is prayer, calling out to the God that created those demons and asking him to fight on our behalf. God rules over these conflicts and events. He limits the damage they do, and he has a precise timetable to end his people's persecution. And that we are to be patient and faithful in a hostile world, and we look to the Lord and the Lord alone for deliverance. So I would commend the book of Daniel to you. Uh, It is a, uh, as I have read and studied it this week, it has been so edifying in the face of all of the stuff that's going on. Um, I, I would commend it to you. And then next week, we'll look at the book of Hosea. So go serve your king.